honestly, I was just working my way up to death. I thought about killing myself every day. I was using all the time, and I, that's not a sustainable lifestyle. My brother shot himself because of drugs. When you are using technology to lure children for sexual purposes, there's a couple of problems that concern me. But I remember feeling kind of relieved after hurting myself. Do you have any idea how much you were worth? I like to say it this way, great people are really built in the furnace of affliction. Our teens are navigating a world of information anarchy and increased stress and pressure. Drugs are glorified more than ever before and there seems to be a suicide option that didn't exist prior. As adults, we are responsible to provide the help at-risk teens need. Have teens changed or is it just the world they live in that's different? Is this why so many teens are traumatized or triggered? My name is Aaron Huey and in 2009, I opened a home for these teens with the hopes of giving them a second chance at creating the life we all know they deserve. Now I wanna give parents the information that contributed to our success and to support them in navigating the at-risk world. These are the stories told by the teens and the techniques used by experts to help them. Welcome to Beyond Risk and Back. In the constant pursuit of parents wanting to understand why their kids do what they do and taking the sum total of human psychology and trying to put it in terms that anyone and everyone can understand, even the kids, because we want the kids not just to be told what they're experiencing from adults and therapists, but we want the kids to actually begin to diagnose themselves and to begin to therapize themselves. Of course, it always starts with them trying to therapize each other, and that leads to wonderful things. As you can imagine, if a parent was trying to tell a kid therapeutically what's going on for them. And really, a good therapist doesn't tell a person what's going on for them, but a rather allows the person to discover through a series of questions and observations and offering information allows the person to discover what's going on for themselves and let the, the reconciliation of, of the past and the future and the now and let, letting the realization of what's truly taking place belong solely to the patient. So in the pursuit of trying to create a dialogue with families and kids about what is going on, why you're doing what you're doing, um, we come down to explaining humans have basic needs. Now, there's a couple different pyramids of human needs, and, and Alexa and I are going to talk about this. But when you, are, when you say to a parent, everything is an expression of need, uh, it gives the parent pause, and they don't want to agree with it because that would mean that maybe they've been denying their child's needs or they've been denying their own needs. But after actually talking about it, you can attribute any action, every behavior, every choice to a need that you're trying to get met. My guest today is one of our therapists at Fire Mountain. She's also one of our teachers and she works with me in our marketing. My guest, today, my guest today is Alexa Argianis, and today's topic is about needs. Welcome to Beyond Risk and Back. Hey, Alexa. Hi, Aaron. I'm glad we're here doing this. This is a good topic. Yes, it is. Okay. So what makes sense to me about having you in on this conversation is that 
you've been a direct care staff member. You've been a, 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 a therapy intern with us. You're running groups now. You're working one-on-one -on -one with our kids and outpatient and an inpatient. So you, you're really on that battlefield. You're in the, on the ground level with the kids. Um, and working with the kids, you're obviously in contact with a lot of parents. Our goal here is to explain why teens do what they do. But again, the hope is that everybody realizes that's why we all do what we do. So you and I were talking about needs earlier, and we had two different versions of needs. So obviously we have Maslow's hierarchy. You probably know about that one better than I do, because that's what I'm assuming they teach in school. So talk about Maslow's, what you remember, what you know about it, how you use it, how you apply it. Sure. Um, so essentially, Maslow's hierarchy of needs tackles five basic human needs. Um, and in order to kind of move on to meet the next one, the first baseline must be met. What do you mean by baseline? Tell me about that. Um, so Maslow's hierarchy is set up kind of like a pyramid. Yeah. Um, that very bottom, that, that first need to be met is uh, physiological needs. Um, somewhere to live, food to eat, air to breathe. Shelter, warmth, water, food. Exactly. Okay, because you, you'll die without those. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Um, so that's the basic need. The next, once those are achieved and maintained, the next is safety. Um, so safety within your relationships, safety within your home environment, within your community, things like that. Um, so safety is that kind of next level. When that is met, the next would be love and belonging. So when you're saying when that one's met, you're saying that when someone has shelter, warmth, water, food, that, that need is met. Then are those things safe? The food they eat, is that safe? Is the water they drink safe? Is right. the shelter they live in safe? Um, is their breathing, their health, is that safe? Right. Then they can pursue the next one. Right. Okay. Is right. pursuit a conscious or an unconscious thing? Unconscious. Right. Definitely subconscious. Um, these are things like physiologically, you know, those physiological needs, when they're not met as a baby, you cry. Nobody teaches you to cry. You just do it. Um, that's an expression of need, right? Right. Um, so essentially that expression happens, your need gets met, you can move on to the next one. You know your mom is a safe person because she feeds you. Um, that creates a safe relationship. But and, if the parent is not safe, right. you have to reconcile that before you can move on. Exactly. Okay. So that first one is physiological. The second is safety. The third being love and belonging. Um, belonging to a family unit, belonging to a peer group of friends, belonging to a community, um, experiencing love. The, that, that is the next um, subconscious need. So now we start to, we start to and I find my mind going to, and I'm assuming, you know, people listening to it, this is why kids who may be raised in an orphanage that, that you know, kind of the old fashioned orphanage where you know, seen and not heard, there was no touch, there was no, um, you know, connected behaviors, but the kids didn't die from it. They didn't thrive, but they did survive because mm -hmm. the survival need is met, which are the, is the very bottom one. So now we're out of survival and we're actually talking about whether or not a person is thriving and you could thrive in love and connection. Mm -hmm. Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. Aaron. Um, that next one after love and belonging would be esteem. 
um, to be able to look at yourself and believe in your innate worth, if you will, um, the innate worth in any human being. Um, so that that comes after love and belonging, okay. um, which comes after safety, which comes after the physiological needs. Right. Now, that final very top little chunk of our pyramid here is self-actualization to create a true identity that you can understand, comprehend, be okay with, um, radical acceptance, if you will, of, being able to determine who you are and feel confident and comfortable. And then that completes the pyramid, meeting all of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Okay. So the Maslow's model is hierarchical and that, that you know, it's self-actualization. When I, when I hear that, I think about, um, you know, then and only then, once all those other needs are met, then I can become my best self. Yes. Then I can pursue a spiritual path. Yes. Then I can. So that that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, the other there's a there's a, there's another um, pyramid of needs that I know of, um, and that we teach the parents here uh, that is more developmental and not as much hierarchical. And one of the reasons why we talk about the five basic human needs in a non-hierarchical way is because we can see, and you and I both work with, um, kids who have unmet needs, okay? And they still live, they still survive, but that's because somewhere the, the Maslow hierarchy is still being fulfilled, right? At Fire Mountain, we've, we've provided them uh, uh, safety, mm-hmm. so that piece is being met. There's connection, we got our bear tribe, they're in constant group. Um, so some of the basic, uh, of, of Maslow's needs are met. However, um, and not however like Maslow's thing is wrong, because that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is this other model of needs allows us to say that everything we do is an expression of an unmet need, okay? So the other needs were, uh, uh, the, other, the other five basic human needs are safety, it's power, it's connection, its freedom and its worth. Um, these needs, anything that we do is literally sending a message to the universe saying, hey, I don't feel blankety blank, all right? Now, when we say that to parents, they automatically want to give examples like, well, why would my kid smoke pot? Why would my kid run away? And we say, which need is not being met? That, that they use running away to fulfill the need because the negative behavior is a way to get the need met. There's an example that I've used a lot on this podcast and we use it a lot when we talk about, and, and obviously as, as long as you and I don't use names, you're welcome to use examples of how kids are expressing need and how we have discovered these needs not being met of kids we've worked with, obviously without names. So we have this girl and she is, for lack of a better term, addicted to suicide, okay? She had come to us. We were her sixth residential facility. She had been uh, in in an adolescent treatment hospital anywhere from three days to 10 days. So many times she had lost count. And she and I had a conversation about um, what happened the first time 
she tried to commit suicide. What led her to it? Her, her and her boyfriend broke up. Her and her best friend had had a big old argument and had a falling out and they weren't on speaking terms. Her brother, who was her best, closest confidant, best friend at home, had left for college. And worst of all, her parents were going through a divorce. So obviously in an adolescent mind, you're gonna look at the scenario and say, this is crap, this is as good as it's gonna get, and there's only one way to fix this problem. So she tries to OD on pills. She wakes up in the hospital, and you can imagine what's taking place, right? Um, mom, at first thing she sees her mom and dad holding each other, both crying. Then she looks to the other side of the bed and there's her brother holding her other hand. She looks around the room, there's her best friend, who she hasn't spoken to in two weeks, sitting in a chair, uh, talking to her ex-boyfriend on the phone. Everybody that had left her, quote, end quote, was suddenly there for her. And so here's this massive need being met. So her brain goes, oh, well, that's how I get what I need. Yeah. Try to commit suicide. And that became her addiction. So I tell that story, and that sends parents looking at a pretty extreme example and seeing the obvious. It's a, it's a pretty outrageous example that has some obvious connections to what was she missing? Right. So what happens next is that then some parent will say well then obviously she was getting the need of power met because she had the power over her family and you're like you're right so then a kid says or a parent says well i try to take away my daughter's cell phone and she threatens to kill herself and we get in reaction to what kids are doing and what kids are saying but not what they're really doing and really saying can you think of some other examples like this that would help Oh, absolutely. Um, I'm kind of picturing, picturing <clears throat> some of our, our clients up at the facility who maybe engage in drug use. Right. Um, why, why do they do this, right? You know, mom and dad are still together and things in life are good. The only reason they're failing school is because they're ditching to get high. Exactly. Uh, what, what need are they trying to meet? Is it connection? Is that the way that they make friends? Is it freedom? Is it finally breaking free yeah. of those uh, kind of chains that your entire family structure sometimes puts on you without intentionally doing that? Right. Um, there, there are multiple ways you can meet these needs, even self-harm. I mean, so many parents look at their kids and say, why on why earth? Why on earth? Why would a kid cut themselves? Exactly. And again, sometimes that is, you know, that connection. Um, they feel connected to their emotional self when they do that. It's a release. So it can be an internal connection and external connection, yeah. internal safety, external safety. Yeah, absolutely. What I think is so amazing about this, and, and let's do this right now. Let's just take cutting for a second and go through every single one of the needs and show how it can fulfill any of them. Okay. So 14 year old girl dealing with depression and anxiety and you're hiding your cuts from your parents. So let's even make it a little bit more challenging. You're hiding your cuts, right? You're not doing it as a cry for help. You're not doing it to get attention. You're hiding it. So um, it fulfills the safety how. How do they feel safe when a person cuts? Well, safety. I mean, it's a safe, you know, you have no intent of 
committing suicide. Nice. Right? So you're Because cutting is not necessarily related to suicide. No, they're completely different. Yeah, and that's a lot of parents don't understand that that cutting is not a sign of suicide. However, all the research is showing that 80% of people who are suicidal also engage in cutting, but cutting is not a prelude to it. Mm. But it does, uh, the brain is being affected by the cutting and, and they're finding that cutting is causing depression. Mm. But it's not directly saying, I'm cutting today, I'm killing myself tomorrow. Right. Yeah. And it's for some, for some teenagers, that is a safe expression of need. I mean, if you are a kid who is focused on school and puts a lot of pressure on yourself, right. That is a way of getting an emotional release without engaging in drug use. It's a massive dopamine rush. Oh, yes. Massive. The, the neurological connections that happen within the brain when an individual is engaging in self-harm, um, those, become, those become more solidified right. each time that self-harming behavior happens. Right. Now, for a teenager whose brain is developing rapidly and is not finished yet, those neurological connections are going to become stronger. So that dopamine rush will become stronger every time. Right. Um, so there, so, so let's, let's stick with safety for another minute, because yeah. if your life as a teenager is so you feel unsafe, you, you you feel out of control, your, your household's out of control, the boil, bullying at school is out of control. This thing is a safe thing for you to do. You have, uh, uh, you know, you're, you're, you would have found something that you've been obsessing about because you have a craving, right? You, you've, you've had a, I mean, let's go all the way through uh, 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 the addict cycle, right? Um, you have an emotional experience that is overwhelming. So you begin to crave release. So then you begin to obsess about finding something to give you that release. You find it and you hide it. You find a place to use it that's a secret hiding place. You use it, feel instant relief, and then the relief wears off. The guilt and shame show up. Guilt and shame are massive uh, uh, emotional things that are difficult to handle. And so all of a sudden you have a craving again. This cycle, and as crazy as this sounds, going through that cycle is at least the routine that is safe, yes. that you are in control of, that you, you know what's coming next, you know how to go through this, everything else around you is chaos. Right. So despite the fact that this is causing all, this pro all these problems in your world, this is the world you know. And if you don't feel safe in someone else's world, you got to create your own. Exactly. All right. So then the next one, um, we, uh, uh, we talked about safety. So now the next one is power. How would cutting make you feel powerful? Well, I think that one is the easiest one. I mean, to, to understand um, from an outsider's perspective, if all of these different things, I'm imagining, you know, some of our clients who experience very severe and complex trauma um, and with the way that the internet works and Facebook and Instagram and all of these different social medias, we are exposed and our youth are exposed to more and more traumas. It's all right on the tips of their fingers now. Well, if you're experiencing all of those different things from different people, what is something that you can do to right. take that power to back? Take all the power. You put the hurt on yourself instead of somebody else putting it on you, which makes you feel powerful. Um, you get to decide, you know, how you're going to, where you're going to, if people are going to know. That's for that's for the individual who's right. engaging in the self-harming activity. 
It's, it's true. You know, we have seen, we have seen and had clients who have cut themselves in front of their parents. Yes. You know, where, where they just, they're holding the blade, they're making threats, the parents are pleading and begging, and they're cutting. And what an expression of power. Oh, yeah. For someone who is so out of control and powerless over their own lives. Right. Right? If someone else is hurting you, and then you, they're in, in, <laughs> We see in relationships a lot, like, like in more adult relationships, we see adults kind of take on the trend that someone has broken my heart so many times, no one's ever going to break my heart again. I'm going to break up with them before they break up with me. Cutting can be the exact same way on physical pain. If, you, if people are physically hurting you, you can take the power of the pain into your own hands. And you, you get to decide how much pain you inflict That's on yourself. That's right. That's right. You have utter, utter power of how... how big this experience is. Yes. Okay. Connection. This is one that parents are also, because we're talking about a kid who's hiding it. We're talking about someone who is uh, sneaking around and maybe the, the family has no idea this is happening. How is this creating connection? Well, and that was kind of, and I want to pull that back to the internal and external connection, right? Yes. This is, this is a true expression of exactly what is going on right. so you're needing you're needing somebody else to recognize and connect with that emotion even if that person is yourself when uh, a youth or an individual you know engages in a self-harming activity or behavior they get to look at their own scar and say oh yeah that did hurt right. oh yeah that was painful i do remember how that felt. i feel yes yes exactly yeah. and that that can meet that internal need for connection. You know, as nuts it is, as it is, we need every parent who's listening, if you have a child that cuts, to understand the need of connection and a child who cuts, go online and look up the websites that support kids who cut. There are entire online communities sure. of people who talk about using it in harm reduction, doing it just a little bit, um, doing it because at least you're not putting chemicals in your body. You and I have been talking the past few days about the concept in marketing about having a unique community that's unlike it, that makes you feel special and connected to something bigger than yourself. Absolutely. It's no different for someone who's engaging in cutting. Oh, absolutely. Right? And I think something else to notice too, and something to note is at least most of the kids that the, the teens that we see come through here, maybe they were hiding it from their parents, but they were probably telling their friends about right. it. They were telling other people You're about right. it and they were talking about it. And, and sometimes it becomes the thing that you get to talk to the counselors at school about, but maybe not your parents, but at least you have connection. And have you ever heard of kids who cut together? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Connection. There it is. What's the difference between two kids cutting themselves together and two kids smoking a joint? Nothing. Or, right, exactly. There isn't any difference. Right. It's, there's, Emotionally, there is like the emotional expression of need there well, is not different. So it is, I don't see any difference and when we first started working when we, when we first started farm out 10 years ago this cutting thing was still people were like what and then it as they started doing these surveys in boulder 15 percent of the kids in high school were self-reporting cutting so that doesn't even talk about the kids who aren't it was that big in boulder county that 15 percent of the kids were engaging in 
So as we were starting uh, Fire Mountain, there was very little research about cutting. Now there's a ton. And it's it's amazing. They they've done brain uh, 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 brain scans on kids who are engaged in cutting, and they're watching which parts of the brains are firing and which ones are being denied oxygen, and on and on. What was amazing is that as a challenge, as a way to learn, I got on the phone book and I called every counselor, every therapist, every psychiatrist, and every psychologist that I knew or could find in the phone book or online. And I said, I need to know what's the difference between drug addiction and cutting addiction. And not one gave me one thing of difference. They said, it's no different. And treatment's the same. Yes. And, and especially you've either got to approach it from a harm reduction. Hey, kid, do it less. See how that feels. And then you move it down to zero or you go abstinent on it. And then you have to experience with that uh, um, person who's addicted to cutting all the different ways they harm themselves. They pick scabs, they pinch, they pluck eyebrows, they pull hair. They just the little things that they do. They don't let something heal. Right. In the same way that a drug addict would be like, okay, hey, I won't smoke pot, but I'm going to have, you know, a glass of wine or I'm not going to do heroin and I'm, but, but I'm going to, I'm going to smoke weed. And when we're talking about true addiction and abstinence, we're not saying that one thing is worse than the other. We're saying that this behavior has transcended. If you're an addict and you're addicted to cocaine, you probably shouldn't go to Vegas. Okay, you know, you probably should stay off porn sites on the internet because your addictive behavior is going to follow you. Okay, um, what's the next one? We've got uh, connection. So freedom. How on earth are we getting freedom from cutting? Well, and I think I think that one is um, sometimes kind of like a, a little bit more difficult to wrap the brain around. However, again, I want to bring it a little bit back to the power one, where you get to the 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 person who's engaging in the self-harming behavior, the cutting, they get to decide how it happens, when it happens, where it happens. They get freedom in that. They have choice. Yeah, they have choice. They have choice about when they're going to get hurt, who's going to know, who's not going to know, where they're going to put it on their body. Um, they have responsibility for all this too. And, and that responsibility and freedom are connected. Right. So there's, there's freedom in the idea of, of choosing how your pain will be inflicted yeah. as opposed to somebody else inf inflicting your pain. Right. I truly believe that particularly when focusing on cutting that the power and the freedom are very, very closely related. Right. Uh, for me, the freedom thing comes up in that moment of relief when the dopamine's mm. firing again, or when you take that hit and you're high, yeah. like you're, you're free, you're free from the world, you're free from the pain, right? When kids cut, and I've asked kids a lot when they come in for a, uh, uh, a tour or something, and we know they cut, and we boot the parents out of the room. And I say, do you cut because you're so full you can't stand it, or because you're so empty you can't stand it, right? And who knows what the answer is, but the result is they're free from that. They, they These chains of depression or chains of anxiety. When you're cutting, and I, and I can say this from, from having tattoos, when you have a needle going in, in and out of your skin, you are perfectly present with that pain, with the moment. Your brain's releasing all kinds of chemicals. I, I tried to read a book during one of my bigger tattoos one time. I, could, I couldn't get half a page in two hours. There is a freedom of being completely present 
in the moment of the past, the future, the anxiety, the depression. Okay, worth. How do we do this one with worth? How do we make someone who is cutting? How, how does this create value? How does this create self-worth? Because you and I both know this as the thing that kids with low self-esteem. Every, every kid has low yeah. self-esteem. And I believe you're never going to have high self-esteem until you have self-concept. And kids don't have self-concept. They're still working out the concept that their parents gave them as a child. And as a teenager, they're saying, I'm going to be me by not being you. And that's all they have for concept. So self-esteem is not the right word, but we're talking about how do you get feelings of worth fulfilled? How do you get the need of worth fulfilled by cutting yourself? Well, and I think that's where we, we go back to the, the, you know, you talked about the kid who is attempting suicide and then everybody's there. Yeah. You, when that does happen, because eventually, right, it does get out. You can't hurt yourself forever without somebody finding out and about that's it. That's true. So I think when it does happen, then those they, those uh, that feeling of that innate feeling of worth is regurgitated to you in right. verbal expression by it's the true. people around you. Here's everything we think that's amazing. Why would you cut that? Right, 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 right. And that a lot of the healing process has to do with it. Exactly. I agree. I, I, I think that's exactly what it is. That if a people have low self-worth, they cut, they get a dopamine rush and they feel better. And that can translate into feeling better about yourself. But more importantly, there is a time frame in the, as you're considering changing to from being a self-harmer to a recovered self-harmer where you're you're actually you cut and people come to your rescue because they value you because they want you around because they don't want you to hurt yourself what's so amazing about this is that we've just done all five of those just on cutting and we can now spend the next eight minutes to do it on smoking weed or cocaine or running away or promiscuity or um, uh, stealing a car. Name a bad decision that isn't attached to a need not being met. If you're violent against someone else, you can track this back to which one? What would you say? I'd probably say power. Power comes right to my mind as well. You feel powerless and your anger. And so to feel power, you, you take a swipe at somebody and you're getting a need met. All right. Somebody's attacking you and you take a swing at them. Which need is it? Safety. Yeah. So it's like, but here's the big deal about this. And this is the part I love about this. You get a parent who comes in and sits down and says, my kid's ditching school and they smoke and pot and they got busted with a bag and now they, and they got thrown out of school and they've been ditching school so much that they're in truancy court and now they're behind on other classes and they're failing and I just don't know what to do. Who could handle that? Like, like here you got a kid who's completely out of control and 15 things have happened, not to mention all the fights you've been in, not to mention the bedroom that hasn't been cleaned in six months, not to mention that they've broken all the house rules. So the parent is completely in crisis and beside themselves. And they're going off about what their kid's doing and what the results are. What we do as therapists, as mental health workers, is we say, okay, what need was being missed? And when you get parents to do that, they stop reacting to what the kid did and they start searching for the need. And 
I've been asked when a parent says, okay, well, let's, what do I do when, when, let's say I go, oh, my kid feels powerless. So I say to the kid, hey, do you feel powerless? And what's a kid going to say? No. You know, of course, of course. And if you're wrong, of course, your teenager is going to tell you that they're wrong. They're waiting for any chance on the planet <laughs> to tell you that they're wrong. So this is not about being right, because the truth is, is that you can take anything we do and find the need. Doing it for someone else is a secondary skill. Doing it for yourself is the primary skill we're looking for to say, wow, why did I do that? Right. Why did I say that that way? What need wasn't being met? But the real goal of this experience is that we are no longer in reaction. We were in our prefrontal cortex. We're thinking about things. We're not just knee jerk to what our kid just said. Right. They say something and we go, wow, they feel disconnected. And so we start acting differently. And we recognize in our knee-jerk moments, wait a second, I'm going to knee-jerk because I feel powerless. This is the consideration of the adult brain, is to think about what's actually happening at the very bottom of all this stuff. And that's what I love about these things. So now let's go back, because what, what makes me curious about Maslow's hierarchy, how do... How do we tell a parent the Maslow's hierarchy, which is the physiological, the safety, the love and belonging, the esteem, and the self-actualization? How does this play into bad decisions? Well, and there, well, that's it's the same way essentially as the needs that we were talking about before. So you've got a kid. We'll use cutting as an example. No, let's use a different one. Let's okay. use running away because okay. I know a lot of our parents deal and that's a big scare one. So okay. let's use running away. So, and that's interesting, right? Because when you run away, you automatically, as a, as a youth, you're taking away your own need, your own physiological need on higher on Maslow's hierarchy. So you're essentially putting yourself in farther crisis. Right. Cause you're in flight mode. Exactly. Well, what's happening in the home what is that's the that's the question that i the first question that comes up in my head is what is going on in the home that the kid is running away from that they're willing to have all of their other needs be kind of thrown to the wind because whatever's going on in the home is so bad now or whatever is going on in their personal life if you're feeling connected to your parents, if you feel this sense of love and belonging, you will be able to stay in your home environment and sit down and have a conversation because you know they love you. You know you belong with that family. Even if you're arguing and fighting. Even yeah, if yeah. you're arguing and fighting. So I would say either that or safety too. I mean, sometimes a kid just doesn't feel safe at home and that's why they're running away. And maybe the parents need to look at their own behavior. So I'm, in my mind, as a, as a parent, um, I, I would say... Um, well, what if my kid's just running because they're angry? Right? Because that, that's, that's going to be the comeback. And is we're saying, well, my kid was just pissed. Okay. We're talking about a big emotion. We're talking about a child. I don't care if it's a 17 or an 18-year-old. It's a child. So now we're talking about a level of uh, uh, emotional experience that can be overwhelming. That the, um, the idea of safety is not necessarily my home is dangerous it can also be Myself. my my mind is dangerous yeah. right now i am um, i i can't control what's going on my thoughts are all over the place they're screaming and yelling and and i'm so angry i can't handle it and so all we do is run away right 
right? It's not that, and I'm going to run away to show my mom. That might come out later if we try to create some rationalization around the action. But the action actually happened because in that moment, the environment did not provide for the need of safety. Exactly. And so the hierarchy has collapsed. Well, and I think too, my response to that parent would say, I would say, you know, well, definitely they were pissed. What's under that? What's under that frustration? What's under that anger? Because we know that anger is a secondary emotion to fear. That's right. So that all comes back to fear. So, so now we can even take this because, because again, we're talking about a child. We're talking about a child whose their life's in chaos. They're failing school. They've been using the, the parents are having with the parents are having constant blowouts. You know, dad finds uh, uh, the boy in the bedroom and they're screaming, you know, the, uh, the boy, gets kicked out the dad and the daughter are screaming at each other the daughter runs um and it's not that the dad was being violent it's not it's just that he's terrified his his needs of of uh, uh are are all out of whack but the daughter's not running because she's scared the daughter's not running because she's angry if if she was to be able to say i am running away from you because i am scared and angry then you're talking about someone who's achieved self-actualization <laughs> which means they don't need to run Right. A person who say, can say to someone, I feel really scared and angry, is, has a hierarchy that's in place. Right. Because they're in connection, they're in self-actualization, I feel. So to try to say, my kid's just doing this because they're a jerk, or they're being malicious. You're still talking about someone who's self-actualized. And I have never, in all my years, and I've worked with thousands and thousands of teens, I've never met a self-actualized one. I've met a developing one, um, and let's be quite honest, I've been all over the world. I've worked with tens of thousands of adults, and the work that I do with them is still about sex, self-actualization. So we have to be really brutal honest, brutally honest about what these needs are and how primal they are, how primal the instinct of fight, flight, freeze, faint, fornicate, and feed. All of those survival instincts are to try to reestablish a need that's not being met. Well, and that that goes all the way back to brain development. I mean, we are born with our limbic system in place, right? Right. We're born with those instincts. Right. And 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 for the parents who who don't know the limbic system, that's the survival system. That's the fight, flight, freeze, faint, fornicate, and feed. It's also called the lizard brain or the reptilian brain. And if you think about what I keep saying with fight, flight, freeze, faint, fornicate, and feed. That's a lizard's life. Right. That's all they do <laughs> is one of those things. So, um, that, that, so, so that's what I was saying. So, so keep going. We're born with limbic in place. So that, that's going to be, uh, especially, you know, we're talking about teenagers here. A teenager's prefrontal cortex, the, the top part of the brain, the cerebrum, is still forming. Right. That gray matter is all becoming these little tight neurons that come together and become a decision-making process. Right, exactly. Now, based on experience. Based right. on the experience that they had with their limbic right. system, which they're born with. Right. So when they engage in these behaviors like smoking weed and cutting and things like that, they are going based on their limbic system and creating a pattern for themselves right. within their prefrontal cortex. Yes. And that's what we see. That's how they end up here in our facility. And patterns are about safety. Yes. Patterns are about <laughs> like... 
the, the idea that everything is an expression of need, I think is very difficult to, to really argue. And once we recognize that that's what's going on, suddenly we all become very human. And that's the whole point is that we, we have to come out of this reactive state. And quite frankly, the, the therapists, in my opinion, have two things that the everyday person may not have. Number one is emotional intelligence training and education, right? And that means how to talk about feelings, how to process feelings, how feelings are connected to different systems in the body. The second thing they have is the ability to maintain self-regulation in times of crisis. Now let's you and I be honest, not all therapists still utilize that one. And uh, I remember uh, my own time, my wife having to look at me and going, hey, uh, Mr. Parent, uh, uh, the educational instructor, are you sure this is the direction you wanna go? And me going, oh yeah, I'm supposed to be really good at this. Um, I would, I would probably argue that my parents would disagree about my emotional. About your, but, but what I'm saying is that, that once again, how primal our needs are related to the limbic system and not the prefrontal cortex. Yeah. Like the prefrontal cortex, because it's in development until boys are 30 and girls are like 24, 25. Like, right. be clear, folks, that's how much, much less developed boys are than girls. Girls' brain. That, that prefrontal cortex is done developing at like 25. They're now saying it can go all the way to 32 with boys. Mm. So uh, I would say don't get married to anybody under 32. <laughs> <laughs> but if, if we're born with the limbic system and that's our survival mechanism, which is completely around establishing safety, which is the bottom and the base of both systems right. of needs, right? If we have, if we don't have safety, we don't have anything to build with. Right. And that's limbic system stuff, which is our first brain, our primal brain. Then by the time we're 15, we have 15 years of understanding our own limbic system. And we're just beginning to develop consideration. Now, wait a second. My boss is yelling at me. This is different from when that kid in middle school yelled at me and then punched me afterwards. And then I was bullied for six months. So I can separate these two. That's a very adult concept. So once again, parents, this is where I come back to the concept of stop using the sentence bad choices. Any sentence with my child is making bad choices, you're making bad choices, you need to make better choices. We're still dealing with A, children, and B, a 15-year-old limbic system that has created all the patterns right. for the need of safety. And there's another piece about this bottom baseline need of safety that's in play. This goes all the way back to the womb. When a child is in the womb, if the mom's in an unsafe relationship, if the mom is alone and she's working and still going to school and this is going on and her stress hormones, if mom is using while the baby is in the womb, the baby doesn't feel safe. The, 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 the primary need of safety is being disrupted in the womb. Adoption. The moment they're born and all of a sudden they're moved into a, a different heartbeat that they haven't been around for the last nine months. Um, we had a young man. Here's a story about needs being met. We had a young man who came to us. I spoke with him while he was in the hospital. And on the phone, on a, he was coming to us with um, uh, marijuana-induced psychosis. 
all right? And this is a relatively new term. Now, this boy was smoking a lot of marijuana, a lot, um, and a very high potency and a developing brain. These things don't mix. A lot, high potency, developing brain. These things do not go together. On the phone with me, he said, if I'm coming to Fire Mountain, I'm fine with it as long as it's very clear to all of you and that you are all able to recognize that I am Jesus Christ reincarnated. And I said, can you explain what that means? And he said, I just did. I am the living Christ and I am here for the second coming. I said, okay, uh, <laughs> we'll see what we can do. The kid came and quite honestly, he was an amazing kid. We loved him. He had a very deep spiritual brain. And as the marijuana came out of his system, obviously his depression and anxiety showed back up. And then his story came out. His story was his birth mother gave birth to him in a Walmart parking lot. She didn't know she was pregnant. And suddenly she went into labor in the parking lot and strangers helped her deliver. And he went right up for adoption. So you can imagine having the primal need of safety, connection, power. None of this was met, not even in the womb. She didn't even know. And she used the entire time she was pregnant. So disconnected from her body. Of course, he wants us to think he's the living Christ. Because the most primal need of I exist has not been met. So he's going to be larger than life in anything he does. That's how potent this stuff is. And that's what I want therapists, teachers, and clinicians. This acting out is a need not being met. So when you discover, as a therapist, when you discover a group's need, because you do a lot of our groups here, say there's a house need that's not being met. How do you instruct kids to go around this? For me, once I realize a need's not being met, the only benefit that I get out of it, honestly, is that I understand that something deeper is going on and I can relate to a person on a deeper level than just reacting to what they're doing and saying. But how, having been our DC staff, what do we do once we say, oh my gosh, this house is disconnected from each other. The needs of connection aren't happening. How do we change that? What do, you, what do we start to do differently? Well, and I think, I mean, me personally, that's when I, I round up all the kids and I say, we have to have a, we have to have a discussion guys. What's going on? What's going on here? Like, what do we, what do we need to, what needs to be addressed now? Does that always happen in a verbal communication? Like a verbally communicated? No. Sometimes it looks like I'm going to give you guys all room time and I'll be around in like five, 10 minutes to check in. And I hand out a piece of paper that says, write down what you need on here. What down, write down what you're missing, what you need to be successful here. Um, and a lot of them will say, like, I need a friend. I need someone to talk to. Oh, man. And they sometimes they're not getting that. Sometimes, you know, it does happen in a verbal conversation. And we sit down in a circle and I say, what do you guys need that is not happening? 
And what do we need to do better as a staff? What do you guys need to do better as peers to one another in a, in a tough program where you're dealing with very, very difficult life experiences and even, even mental health. Maybe a kid doesn't have a, a, a sufficient, if you will, right, right, right. trauma history, but mental health in itself, to struggle with mental health, to, to have severe depression as a teenager, is traumatizing you know so it's those types of things where you sit down and you say what's not being met and you just be honest and you be genuine and you say i feel it i can feel that you guys are off like i can feel something's wrong you know you're saying all these mean things to her over there and she's throwing the chair across the room and let's take a second take a minute check in with yourself isn't it amazing that you know, the simple act of passing out a piece of paper and saying, what do you need, right? That that, that can begin to solve the problems. Because first, and it's interesting because it's, it's almost like reverse psychology. It's like everybody's feeling disconnected. So send them to their own rooms. But the next thing you said was the key, I'll be around. And you connect with each of the kids. There's, there's a break. So now there's a little bit of freedom from the crisis. We've passed out these cards. What do we need to do? What can we change? They're telling staff what they need to do differently. Now there's power. Right. They, they feel like they have power in the situation. So little by little, you're, we're answering every single one of the needs until ultimately you're bringing them back into the group. And the, the two girls, one said the mean thing, the other threw the chair. Now they're actually having an honest conversation and they're reconnected. What, what really is the big punchline of all this is that at Fire Mountain with our kids, kids in treatment, they're taught this, they learn this, they're expected to be able to, at some point, after a certain amount of time, be able to identify what their needs are. So the warning and the punchline to the parent is, when your kid's screaming at you and you start to scream back, just tell me what you need. Um, I don't expect your kid to know. Because we don't teach emotional intelligence in schools. We don't have these kinds of conversations when things are good, let alone trying to have this with a child when things have gone to shit. Oh, good luck right? with that. <laughs> Let me know how it goes, huh? Right? So, <laughs> this, so, so the tip, the number one tip is you sit down with your kid and say, I'm realizing that when I'm hollering at you about how you didn't clean your room, that it's because I feel one of them. I don't know which one, whichever one you feel, and then describe it to your kid. And then when, when, when the kid says, then you say to the kid, when I'm yelling at you about cleaning your room, how do you feel? Well, I hate it. Okay. I hate it. Isn't a feeling like, what's the feeling? Are you happy? Sad? Like learning how to talk about how you feel, learning how to express what you need, learning how to recognize that a need is not being met and you're acting a certain way to try to get the need met and then regulating your nervous system so that you can pull back and actually meet the need in a healthy way. I want to end with this example of, of needs being met. We ask the kids all the time, you have grown up with posters on your preschool, kindergarten, uh, elementary school and middle school walls that tell you that smoking is bad. It's bad for you, it's bad. There is not a person on this planet that thinks smoking is a good idea. Then you get into high school and you start smoking. Now the good news is only 18% of kids that start smoking in high school actually continue smoking to adulthood. But if you see how many adults smoke, that's still a pretty large number. All right, 
So the kids, we then say to the kids, you know it's bad. Why would you make that choice? There's a cost and there's a payoff. The cost is you might die from cancer one day, which is a concept. One day isn't an actualized concept, right? So you might die from cancer. Well, there's a might and only old people die from cancer. That's a teen's brain. So what's the payoff? Why do you smoke? What do you get from it? And here's what the kids say. Well, I get a break. I get to hang out with a group of friends and I go outside and we just stand around and talk and smoke. Now, what I know is that when you're smoking, you're also breathing very deeply. What you're breathing is not that good. In fact, it's quite toxic. But look at everything that the kid just said. I take a break, I go outside, I be with friends. That's freedom from stress. It's power, taking a break. That's connection to nature, connection with other people. And now you're deep breathing. So you can look at a kid and then say, then get some friends and go on a hike because you can get all that exact same <laughs> stuff. But, but going on a hike is work. Yeah. Screaming at your parents that you hate them because it makes them cry and they talk softer to you and then you break down and cry is a much faster and easier way to say, I need you to connect with me, right? Than going through all the work of learning how to talk about your feelings, learning how to identify your needs, being self-regulated enough to have a conversation where you can talk about it in a clear manner. Yeah, absolutely. And so until adults can do that, I don't expect kids to be able to do that. No. So, all right, this was good. High five. <laughs> I want to, as always, uh, thank my editor, Dan, and the boss goddess at Mental Health News Radio, Kristen Walker. Uh, you can join us every week for here at beyondriskandback.com to see new episodes. Please give us a listen, like, subscribe, and share. We'll talk in a week. Remember, parents, the rule and the mantra is you take care of yourself first, you take care of your adult relationships second, and you take care of your kids third, because in that way, we do our best work with our kids. I'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Beyond Risk and Back. Join us each week for your connection to experts in adolescent health and wellness, recovery, and responsibility, and also to listen to teens talk about their lives in crisis. For more information on our program for struggling teens or me, please go to firemountainprograms.com, join us on Facebook at Fire Mountain Residential Treatment Center, or at Beyond Risk and Back. Visit our YouTube channel at Fire Mountain RTC for even more support with our parent training videos. Special thanks to Mental Health News Radio for their continued love and support of our program. Please go to mentalhealthnewsradio.com to see all of their podcasts. Feel free to email me at Aaron at firemountainprograms.com. <laughs>